This is episode number 167 with New York Times bestselling author of Hooked and Indistractable, Near Eyal. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Nick Carrier's Best You Podcast. My name is Nick Carrier, lifestyle entrepreneur and fitness trainer. My goal is for you to gain more clarity on what the best version of yourself looks like, what the best version of yourself is capable of, and then to provide the tools, tips, and inspiration on how to make that person come to life. Today I bring you Nir Ayal. Nir writes, consults, and teaches about the intersection of psychology, technology, and business. The MIT Technology Review dubbed Nir the prophet of habit-forming technology. Nir is also the best-selling author of Hooked and Indistractable, his most recent book. In this episode, Nir breaks down his four steps to becoming indistractable. We talk about how to avoid our internal triggers that cause us to get distracted. We talk about his time boxing technique that keeps him focused every single day. We talk about the effect that our behaviors have on our own self-image and so much more. Make sure you take a screenshot of this episode when you're listening and post it to your Instagram stories and tag me at carrier underscore best you and tag near at N-E-Y-A-L 99 and let us know your favorite part. The skills of focus and becoming indistractable are going to be the two skills that are most important for everyone to learn and develop. It's never a destination to reach, but a journey to be constantly worked on and improved upon. Nir is one of the most renowned thought leaders and researchers on this topic in the entire world. So be sure to take notes and to get the book at nirandfar.com. That's N-I-R-A-N-F-A-R.com. Also, if you're struggling to exercise during this quarantine, go to nickcarrier.com fitness to pick up my ebook, The Body Weight Grind. That's just $10. It's a four-week bodyweight workout program that is perfect during the quarantine. But for now, it's time. It's time to work on getting closer to the best version of yourself today. It's time to work on becoming indistractable with New York Times bestselling author, Nir Ayal. All right, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to Nick Carrier's Best You Podcast. To say I'm fired up for this interview is probably an understatement because this is a topic that we're going to dive into today that I'm probably maybe most passionate about. And I'm super stoked to have Wall Street Journal bestselling author Nir Ayal with me today. Nir, just want to say uh, thanks for spending the time with me today to start. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, Nick. Yeah, of course. So like I said, I've been super stoked about this. You're the Wall Street Journal bestselling author of Hooked and most recently Indistractable. Uh, you're a public speaker, consultant, and investor. And like I said, really over the last three years is when I've developed the fascination kind of for this topic. And it started off by seeing it a lot in myself of knowing things that I should do, but not always doing what I know and kind of seeing that gap between knowledge and action. And I hadn't heard of the idea until I saw your your TED talk, I think, of Plato's idea of acrasia. I'm not sure if that's a correct pronunciation, but doing things against our better judgment. So all these things kind of have sparked my motivation to learn more and more about this, which is why I'm so fascinated by your book. And so basically the way I want to start off the interview is having you kind of frame up the indistractable model with um, internal triggers, external triggers, traction and distraction and stuff like that. So if you could just frame that up for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, it seems like that uh, distraction is a new problem and that it was caused by the iPhone, but it turns out that Plato had the very same problem 2,500 years ago. So this is certainly nothing new. People have been struggling with distractions since time immemorial. 
And uh, really the best place to start to understand distraction, this problem that Plato called akarasia, as you said, it's, it's this tendency that we have to do things against our better interest. And I think now we actually have less of an excuse than ever before because, you know, in Plato's time, he didn't have Google. So if he didn't know how to do something, th that knowledge was locked up somewhere. And so people, you know, could complain, I, I don't know how to do something. But today, how can we honestly complain that we don't know how to get in shape? Who doesn't basically know how to get in shape? Who doesn't basically know how to have better relationships? Who doesn't basically know how to be better at their job? It's about, uh, you know, doing the work. It's about actually doing what you say you will do. And so the problem is no longer this information gap of not knowing what to do. The problem is that despite knowing what we do, we don't do it. And yeah. so that's really the, this fundamental issue of imagine what a superpower it would be if you simply did what you said you would do, right? If you followed through, if you lived your life with intent, if you became indistractable. So I wanted indistractable to sound like indestructible because I really believe mm. that becoming indistractable is the skill of the century. I mean, this is the superpower that we all need, no matter what facet of our life we're thinking about. It, this is the, the macro skill to achieve what we want to achieve in life. And it, it all starts first and foremost by understanding what is distraction. That uh, to understand distraction, we have to understand what is the opposite of distraction. So if, mo if you ask most people what's the opposite of distraction, they will tell you it's focus. But that's not exactly true. You see, the opposite of distraction is not focus. The opposite of distraction is traction. That if you look at the, the origin of both words, they both come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull. And you'll notice that both words end in the same six letters, A-C-T-I-O-N, that spells action. So traction is any action that pulls you towards what you want to do, things that you do with intent. Now, the opposite of traction is dis. Traction, anything that pulls you away from what you plan to do, any action that is not what you plan to do with intent. So this is really important for two reasons. Number one, anything can become a distraction, right? Mm -hmm. How many times have you sat at your desk like I used to and said, okay, now I'm definitely going to work on this hard project. I'm going to get to work. I'm not going to get distracted. I'm totally going to focus. Here I go. I'm going to get started. But let me just check email real quick. Right. Right. Let me do that one thing on my to-do list to just feel like I'm getting some momentum, right? And it turns out that we allow ourselves to let distraction trick us. It fools us into prioritizing the urgent at the expense of the important. And that is deadly to your productivity, to your focus, to your drive, to your well-being, because you are not doing what's important. You're doing what feels urgent. And even if it feels like a worky task, right? Or email feels like something I got to do at some point, right? But if that's not what you plan to do, you are just as distracted as you would be checking Facebook or watching a YouTube video. In many ways, those things are better because when you're playing Candy Crush at your desk at work or you know, procrastinating on a project by, by scrolling Facebook, you know you're slacking off, right? right? It's pretty clear. But when you're doing something that is not what you intended to do, like check email, when you said you were going to work on that big project, then distraction has tricked you. So just as anything can become a distraction, I argue anything can be traction. So, you know, there's a lot of these, uh, these chicken little tech critics these days that tell us to just stop using these technologies, that uh, uh, go on a 30-day digital detox, stop using these tools because, you know, that's the source of the problem. Not only is that incredibly elitist, right? How many people can just stop 
checking email. You can't, you'll get fired, right? right? So it's easy for some professor to say, you know, without a social media account to say, stop checking Facebook. Many of us rely on this stuff for our livelihoods. And I argue that there's nothing wrong with these technologies, that they're tools like any other, and we can use them to benefit us as long as we move them from distractions into traction by making time for them. Yeah. So there's nothing wrong with using these tools as long as you use them on your schedule versus the media company's schedule. Yeah, yeah, no, perfect, perfect. And so I've really liked the three ways that you kind of lay out to master internal triggers. So basically you talk about how internal- tri- Before you get into that though, I didn't talk about what internal triggers are. <laughs> okay, go for it. So you've got traction, you've got distraction. Now we need to talk about what leads us to traction or distraction. We have two types of what we call triggers. We have external triggers and we have internal triggers. External triggers, these are the pings, the dings, the rings, all of these things in our outside environment. And this is what people tend to blame for distraction, right? My iPhone distracted me. My, uh, the email distracted me. The, 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 the message distracted me. And those are external triggers. And there's, there's a lot you can do about those external triggers. That's actually the easiest problem to fix. Uh, and I t- I'll tell you exactly how to do that if you want to get into that. But it turns out that even though that's what people tend to blame, that is not the most likely cause of distraction. That in fact, most distraction does not start from outside of us, but rather it begins from within. And that's where we need to talk about these internal triggers, that most distractions occur because we are looking to escape some kind of uncomfortable emotional state. So when we are lonely, we check Facebook. When we're uncertain, we Google. When we're bored, we check you know, stock prices, sports scores, the news, uh, Reddit, Pinterest, you name it. We use these products and services to escape some kind of emotional discomfort. And so all distraction, in fact, all action period is motivated by this desire to escape discomfort. So that means, therefore, that time management is pain management. And we have to understand that fact because, you know, no life hacks, no productivity books, none of that stuff is going to work if you first and foremost don't understand the root cause of distraction, the the answer to Plato's 2,500-year-old question of why do we do things against our better interests is always because we are looking to escape discomfort. So that's how we have to start our journey to becoming indistractable is to first learn to master those internal triggers. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Thanks for framing that up. So basically, you kind of talk about three ways to master these internal triggers. And I kind of want to start with the first one, which is reimagine the trigger. And you, like you said, internal triggers are essentially an uncomfortable state that we're in. And I think that I didn't think about it this way until until I read your book, but I'm very intentional every single day about like writing everything down on a whiteboard of what I'm going to do and checking everything off one by one as I go through it and do it. And at the end of the day, I'll go back and assess and see how much I did. And I know how good it feels when I do everything. And I know how bad it feels if I come up short on a number of things. And I think a lot of the motivation for me is to avoid the feeling of coming up short. So that's why I'm pretty good with following through on a lot of these things. And so basically what I'm getting at is I want you to talk about leveraging kind of the uncomfort that you're trying to avoid. I don't know if that's the best way to to ask the question, but if, if you're trying to avoid an uncomfortable scenario, how can we leverage that in appropriate in the appropriate way? 
Yeah, so so one of the myths in the personal productivity and self-help community these days is that feeling bad is bad. Right. <laughs> I mean, think of any books you see out there with happy or happiness in the title. Everybody tells us that if you're not happy and satisfied and contented all the time, something's wrong with you. That's ridiculous. In fact, our species has evolved with this feature, which is that we are never happy for long. That's by design. That is what evolution gave us. Because think about it for a minute. If there was ever a species, a, a, a group of homo sapiens, let's say an offshoot of our species, that had this magical ability to be happy all the time and satisfied with life, those people would have been killed and eaten by our ancestors, right? You don't right. want a species that just sits around and says, oh, everything's awesome. Everything's great. I'm happy. <laughs> right? We yeah. need discomfort to prod us into action, to mm -hmm. create, to invent, to uh, invest in our futures, to make those, the, the, our lot in life better. We need that discomfort. But here's the thing. It's about how you deal with that discomfort. Yep. Do you use that discomfort and escape from it? Do you look for some kind of psychological relief to pacify that sensation with more booze? More news, more Facebook, more football, you name it, something to take my mind off of this uncomfortable state? Or do you harness that discomfort to lead you to traction, which is helpful, versus distraction, which is hurtful? And so it's really about how do we harness that, that sensation because these aren't going to go away, right? It's, it, you, you, you know, to push them down and try and escape this discomfort or to distract yourself from that discomfort by taking your mind off of it is, is not effective. You need strategies that can help you cope with that discomfort in a healthier manner. That's what mastering these internal triggers is all about. Yeah, yeah. And so there was also a you know, phrase you mentioned earlier about how we're falling victim to the urgent uh, and sacrificing the important, if you will. And so that's a, I'm very familiar with those terms. I first read them in Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by uh, Stephen Covey and kind of dove into those a lot with, with myself. And one of the things that I have found is I try to trick my brain to make some of those important things seem urgent by putting them next to other urgent things. So for example, when I write down things on my whiteboard, I'll put those important things on there like read, like write, or some of those things that, you know, we don't always get to. And I put them next to urgent things like send emails to these people or that sort of thing. And because over time, I have always put those on the same like level. To me, I visualize them as of being of the same priority. And so that's how I have tried to like trick my brain to make the important seem urgent. I don't know if you've ever had any any experience with that because I feel like it's really hard to just like say. Yeah, the solution is really about step two to becoming indestructible. So step one is about mastering the internal triggers. There's lots and lots of strategies and tactics that, we, that you could use to do that. There's over a dozen different things you can do to master these internal triggers that I talk about in the book, but that's only step one. Step two is about making time for traction. So I, I don't like to-do lists. I think to-do lists are screwing people over. And I know people don't realize this because this is the gospel of productivity is, you know, to get things done, make a to-do list. Boom. And I think most people don't realize that to-do lists are a tool to trick yourself into believing you're incompetent. Hmm. And here's how this works. It's called the tyranny of the to-do list. Most people, when they use a to-do list, 
they have a big long list of stuff to do. And this is me in a nutshell. Look, I wrote this book for me first and foremost, right? That uh, uh, I taught at Stanford for many years. And the busier I got, more successful I got, the less time I had to do what I said I was going to do. And so I would use these to-do lists and I would keep track of all the things I need to do. But invariably, on most days, I didn't finish everything. And so I'd have this chunk of tasks that get recycled. You know how this works. Everybody does this. Gets recycled from one day to the next, to the next, to the next. And what people don't realize is that when they operate in this way, the reason to-do lists backfire is they don't appreciate the importance of self-image. That when you reinforce your self-image day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, that yet another day has passed and you didn't do what you said you're going to do. You said you were going to do all this stuff and you didn't do it. Loser. And that identity gets reinforced over time. And then here's where it really becomes toxic. We accept it. We start thinking to ourselves, well, here's, here are all my, my goals for the day, my priorities for the day. And then if we don't finish everything, well, oops. Right. <laughs> and that yeah. is deadly. Don't do that. Stop using these to-do lists or at least use them correctly. A to-do list should be a temporary repository. It's a temporary resting spot between your head and your calendar. You have to put that stuff on your calendar. You have to use this technique called keeping a time-boxed calendar. What people don't realize is how much healthier it is to immediately, as soon as you can, put those to-dos on your to-do list or have time in your day to make sure that you take all that stuff on your to-do list and you turn your tasks into time. Now, why is this so mm. important? Now, look how differently someone who operates with a time box calendar operates from someone who operates on a to-do list. So the person who uses a to-do list works throughout the day. They're not really sure what they're supposed to do when. So they allow things that aren't really all that important to interrupt them, all these urgent tasks, the pings, the dings, this coworker, the, you know, the news, Facebook, Twitter, whatever, because all they have to do is just follow these things on the, the to-do list, but they don't know when, okay? So yeah. invariably, they don't, they don't finish what they said they were going to do, and they feel like crap at the end of the day. And here's the real tragedy. Even when we go home, right? I used to do this all the time. I would follow these to-do lists. I wouldn't get everything done. I would go home, and I said, I just want time to relax, right? I want some time to to watch Netflix, to be with my daughter. And yet in the back of my head was you didn't finish all that stuff you said you were going to do. And so I couldn't even enjoy my free time yeah. because I was feeling guilty about what I didn't get done. As opposed to a time box calendar, the goal of a time box calendar is to not finish anything. What do I mean by that? Don't finish anything. How do I get anything done? Right? I got to finish stuff. Well, here's the thing. A to-do list is a list of tasks to finish. Finish this, finish this, finish this. But without knowing the input, how can you possibly assess the output? As opposed to with a time box calendar, you are directly controlling the input, the input of your time. Mm. So the goal at the end of each time box period is one thing, to work on whatever it is you said you were going to work on for as long as you said you would work on it without distraction. That's it. Mm. That's your only goal. It's not to finish a task. It's to work on the task without distraction for as long as you said you would. 30 minutes, 15 minutes, an hour, an hour and a half. I don't care. As long as you said you would. Because what does that do to our psyche? It reinforces our identity. After every time box, you did it. 
You're indistractable. You did what you said you're going to do. You acted with personal integrity. And that muscle begins to be stronger and you start believing this. This is who you yeah. are now. You are indistractable. And so that's why it's a much healthier system to understand how you will spend your time, right? Seven days a week, understand every minute of your day. Now, why is this so important? Here's the thing. You cannot call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. Right. This is common sense. If you have a bunch of white space in your day, right? If your calendar isn't booked with how you want to spend your time, and I'm not saying book it just for work. No, I want you to live out your values, turn your values into time, whether it's time to go exercise, time to watch a movie, time to play video games, time to hang out with friends. I don't care what it is you do with your time. I just want you to help. I want to help you do whatever it is you say is important. And so that's why we have to use this practice of using a time box calendar. And I didn't invent this technique. It's been around for decades. The research is unequivocal. Thousands of studies show how effective this is. And it's such a simple technique that very few people actually do. And I think part of the reason is because it's kind of hard to get started, right? It takes maybe like 30 minutes to do it the first time. And then every time after that, it takes literally to, you know, I do it every week. It takes me 15 minutes a week tops. But to get started is a little bit of an umph. So I actually built a, uh, an online tool. I'll give you the link for the show notes. It's on my website, nearandfar.com. It's this schedule maker tool that anybody can use to make a calendar very, very quickly. Uh, you don't have to sign up for anything. It's totally free. I don't need your email. You can just use it on the website. Uh, and, and the beauty of this is that now you will have a physical manifestation of how to spend your time. You will have something that you can look at and say, ah, everything on my calendar is traction. Yeah. Everything else is distraction. And without that, you can't call yourself distracted because what did you get distracted from? Yeah. And so do you think one of the biggest things about the time box compared to a to-do list is kind of this combination of defining what success looks like in the sense that I'm going to follow through with it for this amount of time and then be done with it? Because a lot of people, in my, in my experience, a lot of people with to-do lists just say like, work on this and they don't like to say it for a specific amount of time. They don't define what a success looks like. And so they either continue working on it because they're not sure exactly how much work on means or they stop short because they tell themselves they've done good enough. So do you think it's like really about defining what success looks like? And then two things. First, you know, when you say you have an output, right? I want to finish something. We know that study after study has found that people are horrible at estimating how long something takes them to do. If you think something's going to take you an hour, the studies show it usually takes you three times longer. It actually will take you about three hours. People are horrible at predicting how long a task takes them to do. And that's why that to-do list methodology doesn't help you learn over time. It's only by predicting, I think it's going to take me about this long. I'm going to work on it for this long, and then I'm going to reassess. I'm going to say, okay, I, I worked on you know, this writing assignment. I worked on this blog post. I worked on this, you know, doing my taxes. I, I don't care what it is. It, I worked on it this long. How much did I get done? And it's only through that reassessment that you can accurately gauge how long stuff takes you to do. With just a to-do list approach, it, it's, yeah. it, it doesn't have any bounds. It doesn't have any constraints. The second thing, funny enough, is that by not prioritizing finishing, like a to-do list is all about things I need to finish. By not prioritizing finishing and instead prioritizing working without distraction, the people who use the time box method get more done. Mm. They actually finish more. 
than right. the people who do the, the, the to-do list method. Yeah, no, and, I, and I've heard you um, talk about this before and what I just thought of, and I've experienced this in my head as well. When you know that you're going to get to something a little bit later on because you've planned it later on, you're not thinking about it and you can be fully present in the task at hand. That's exactly right. Exactly right. Well, you know, including fun stuff, right? right. Like many people are thinking, oh, I really want to, you know, check ESPN.com to see how my team did. Or I really want to check Facebook. I really want to check Instagram. I want to check it so bad. That's that internal trigger, right? It's that uncomfortable emotional state that you can only satiate by checking. But if you know, okay, no big deal. In my calendar, it says 1230 for 30 minutes. I'm going to putz around on the internet for 30 minutes. It's coming, right? So I don't have to ruminate on it. I know it's coming and I can chill out. I know I have time for it in my day. Same same with email. Email is a big one. You know, the time studies show that where we waste the most time on email, it's not the checking or the replying that wastes time. It's the rechecking of email. We use email as this pacification device when I'm uncertain about what to do at work, who might need me, what's going on. This is this little stress reliever, you know, of the of checky, 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 checky. And that makes me feel better. But of course, right. it's a complete waste of time. Whereas if you know, okay, four times a day, you know, 9.30, 11.30, 2.30, 4.30, I'm going to check email for 30 minutes. Now I don't have to worry about it the entire day. It's in my schedule. I know exactly when I'm going to check email. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I'm gonna actually going to go back real quick to the urgent and important thing that I brought up earlier because I watched you on another podcast and I saw you talk about a study done by, or it was done because a lot of times nurses gave people the wrong medication leading to a lot of deaths. And, and yeah, so that's actually what, has to do with step three. The, the, so the first step is about mastering internal triggers. Second step is about making time for traction. Now we're talking about step three, which is prevent, I'm sorry, hacking back external triggers. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, and external triggers, as I said earlier, this is all about the things in our outside environment, the pings, the dings, the rings, the number one source of distraction, believe it or not, the, the average knowledge worker, actually 80% of knowledge workers who were surveyed said the number one source of distraction in the modern American workplace was other people, right? It was people tapping you on the shoulder, say, hey, can I talk to you for a quick sec? Especially, oh my God, if you work in one of these open floor plan offices, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It can be a tremendous distraction when people are walking around and getting your attention. And so that's where I talk about this study uh, between nurses. You know, We know that about 200,000 Americans every year are harmed when nurses give the patient the wrong medication. They make mistakes. And the, the tragedy is not only are people harmed, but the nurses don't even realize they make these mistakes because they think they're doing a great job right? I'm, I'm, I'm doing awesome, right? It's only the next day when they come into work and somebody says, did you know what you did to that patient? You almost killed them because you gave them the wrong medication. And so the solution to this problem is actually a group of nurses at UCSF that found this brilliant solution that actually reduced prescription mistakes by 88%. They almost eliminated the problem. And the solution was cheap plastic vests. These plastic vests that the nurses wore that said on the front and back, Drug rounds in progress do not disturb. Mm. And this almost completely eliminated the problem. And so the lesson here and what we can do with this in the modern American workplace is that we also can have these type of messaging. I don't want you to wear these plastic vests, but instead what I want you to do, 
you can go to my website and print this out. Or if you get a copy of Indistractable, it's actually in every copy of the book, there's what I call a screen sign. And a screen sign is this piece of cardstock. It's bright red. You can't miss it. You rip it out of the book, you fold into thirds, and you put it on your computer monitor. And so then when anybody walks around and sees this bright red sign that says, I'm indistractable, please come back later, it gives a very explicit message. Look, right now, I need to focus. I need to think. Please come back later if you need me. Right. Have you read uh, Checklist Manifesto by any chance? Uh, no, I've heard of it, but I, hadn't, I haven't read it. So the reason why I was so fascinated by it is because basically this guy who is a well-known doctor and they saw like the same thing, that there was a lot of mistakes going on in hospitals and things like that. And the the number of deaths that really just shouldn't be happening was ridiculous. And the study that they did is they implemented checklists into a lot of like different hospitals that were required to be looked at before surgeries and different things like that. Because in my eyes, when you create a checklist, it kind of makes those items on that checklist seem urgent to you. And I have to do them because I have to check that thing off. And to me, the wearing of the vest is something that's urgent because it's acting on you. It's it's, it's in your face right away and, you, and it kind of calls it to your attention a little bit more. Right. So this is what we call hacking back the external triggers. So to hack something means to gain unauthorized access, right? Like a computer hacker hacks into a, a bank computer or something. It's about gaining unauthorized access. And what's clear is that a lot of people are allowed to gain unauthorized access to us, whether it's the tech companies yeah. and the media companies that hack our attention by giving us these clickbaity headlines and whatever thing is going on in the news today is something that you know they, they have to hack our attention. Uh, whether it's some colleagues in the workplace who gain unauthorized access to our attention when we're trying to work on a project. So we can hack back right? We are not right. powerless. If they're hacking us, we can hack them. And so one of the ways that we can hack our, our work environment is with this screen sign. It can be very, very effective. Uh, another thing that we can do to hack back is to change the technology to serve us instead of us serving it. So right. for example, you know, I love watching YouTube videos. There's so much great content out there. I love learning from, from a lot of this awesome content, but I don't want all that junk on the page. You know, I don't need those videos uh, that are on the side. Many of them are advertising that get me to watch stuff I didn't really need to see or the autoplay functionality. Did you know that you can use a tool called YouTube DF? DF stands for distraction free. It's a Chrome hmm. extension, completely free, that you can use to disable all that annoying functionality, wow. right? We can hack back our technology. You know, for example, one thing that, that drives me nuts, you know, people complain, oh, tech is so addictive, it's hijacking our brains. Do you know that two-thirds of people with a smartphone never change their notification settings? Yeah, I bet. What? Really? <laughs> right. <laughs> like technology is so addictive and you couldn't take five minutes to turn off those stupid notifications so you're not constantly being pinged and dinged. Right? Mm -hmm. That takes no time. And guess what? Zuckerberg can't turn those notifications back on. There's nothing right. they can do about it. So we need to stop blaming the external triggers and find ways to hack back to make sure that the technology is serving us as opposed to us serving it. Yeah, no doubt. I think the biggest thing that has helped me out is putting my phone on do not disturb like 90% of the day. Totally. Why not? And it's still, I mean, it's, you know, this idea of, you know, go on a digital detox and digital minimalism. Why? 
You don't have to. <laughs> we can, right. and frankly, most of us will get fired. It's not practical, but we can use these tools. You know, the, the, they come built in with many of this functionality. But this is the kindergarten stuff. This is the easy stuff. Anybody, everybody should turn off the notifications that don't serve them. But the harder stuff is, you know, what do you do about uh, meetings? that don't need to be called. Oh my God, how much time do we spend in stupid meetings that just waste everyone's time? Or email, what a time sink, what a distraction all these emails can be. Turns out there's a lot of techniques that everyone can use to save a ton of time on these pointless distractions. Yeah, I've used an extension called Boomerang for Gmail a number of times to, you can like block anything from being coming in your inbox until like a certain time of day if you want to. But one of the things that I'm super fascinated by is basically you you talked about it a little bit earlier, the kind of like self-image thing. And I'm going to pull out a couple of lines from the book. By aligning our behaviors to our identity, we make choices based on who we believe we are. Right. Though conventional wisdom says our beliefs shape our behaviors, the opposite is also true. And so... I've also, I actually haven't read the book, but I've heard him talk a lot, uh, Atomic Habits by James Clear. And he talks a lot about becoming the type of person who does a particular habit, essentially changing your identity. And so I guess a question that I want to ask for you, and maybe you can kind of touch on the whole idea beforehand as well, but is there a specific time in your life when you had to change a behavior so that you could begin to see your identity differently? Yeah, so identity is, is, a, is a consistent theme through the book because the research shows that uh, long-term behavior change is identity change. That mm. if you can see yourself differently, it becomes much easier to behave differently. So this is where step four comes in. So we talked about mastering the internal triggers, making time for traction, hacking back the external triggers. The last step is about preventing distraction with pack. So a pact is what we call a pre-commitment device. It's when we make a decision in advance to when, for, so that when the time comes for us to potentially get distracted by something, we don't need to exert willpower and self-control. We have a system in place as a uh, firewall to prevent us from getting distracted. And there are three types of these pre-commitments that we can make. We can make what's called an effort pact, where there's some kind of friction to not doing what, what gets me distracted. There is a price pact, where there's some kind of monetary disincentive to getting distracted. And then finally, there's what we call an identity pact. And this is what what you're alluding to. So an identity pact comes from the research into the psychology of religion. That we know when someone has a particular moniker, an identity with which they identify themselves by, they become much more likely to do what what they say they're going to do to stay in line with that identity. So for example, if a, a devout Muslim doesn't contemplate, ooh, I wonder if I should have that gin and tonic. No, devout Muslims don't consume alcohol. It's just what they do. Uh, Even a vegetarian, right? A vegetarian doesn't say, hmm, should I have some bacon this morning for breakfast? No, vegetarians don't eat meat. It is who they are. And so if you can form an identity for yourself that keeps you on track, that can be a very effective tool to, to, to help you not get distracted, which is where this title, Indistractable, comes from. Because I really think there's going to be a bifurcation out there between people who allow their time and their attention and their lives to be controlled by others and those who say, nope, I am indistractable. I choose my time. I choose my attention. I choose my life because this is who I am. I am indistractable. That's my identity. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that 
what you talked about earlier in terms of how to build that identity, like the time boxing thing is super key because you see yourself continually spending the time where you say you're going to do it and you build that reputation with yourself that you're actually going to do what you say you're going to do. Right. That's exactly right. So it's through these acts. And look, some of them are a little bit weird. I'm going to give you some tactics that you're not going to do all at once. Right. Right. Uh, Anybody can get started. There's no excuse to say, oh, it's too difficult. I don't want to time box all day. No, no problem. How about time boxing an afternoon or a weekend day? Right. You don't have to do all seven days a week. You can start small. How about learning one tactic to cope with these internal triggers so that you're not reaching for the bottle, uh, reaching for the news, reaching for your phone, as opposed to finding ways to deal with that distraction in a healthier manner? Uh, you know, how everybody can take these small steps to hack back these external triggers. Everybody can use a pact to make doing a behavior they don't want to do a little bit more difficult. Everyone can call themselves indistractable right now just by listening to this podcast episode. You can choose to say, no, you know what? I want to live with personal integrity. I want to do what I say I'm going to do. And by doing that, you become indistractable. And what happens over time is you begin to adopt more and more of these techniques. Uh, you will find that that you'll want to do more of these techniques. You'll want to find how else can I master the internal triggers? How else can I you know, make time for traction, hack back the external triggers, prevent distraction with packs? You can add on more and more and more to, to reinforce this identity. And it's not that different from what we saw happening back, uh, you know, a few decades ago with smoking. You know, when I I grew up, I was born in the 1970s, but I remember the 1980s. And one thing I remember about the 80s is uh, that in my home, in my living room, growing up, we had ashtrays. Everybody had ashtrays. Because back then, if you walked into somebody's house, people just expected to smoke. Even though my parents didn't, they still had ashtrays. because Smokers just came in and lit up a cigarette. Now, today, that would be crazy, right? Nobody would expect to light up a cigarette in your living room. You'd kick them out. That would be incredibly rude. Well, what changed? Was it a law that says you can't smoke in someone's private residence? No, that, that's never been the case. You can smoke where, you know, you can smoke in someone's private home. There's no law that says you can't. What changed was that we adopted what we call social antibodies, that societies begin to adopt these new behaviors when a behavior is seen to be unhealthy for society. So I remember when my mom threw away the ashtrays one day, and when one of her friends came over and lit up a cigarette, she said, oh, I'm sorry, we are non-smokers. You see that identity? We are mm-hmm. non-smokers. If you want to smoke, please go outside. And that was very rude. What? You're going to make me go outside to smoke? That was unheard of. <laughs> well, right. it took someone brave like my mother to say, no, this is how I want to live. This is how I want to raise my family. And so we have to do the same thing with distraction, right? We have to call each other out. If somebody at the table is using their phone when you want to spend quality time with them and you want them to be fully present, we, we, we need to, to inoculate society to know that that's kind of a rude thing to do, right? right? I see this in the workplace. You know, I get hired for a lot of money to go teach companies how to be more productive, how to stay, how to stay indistractable. And many times, somebody in the back of the room will be using their phone in the middle of a meeting, by the way, most of the time, nine times out of 10, it's the boss. It's not the millennial, Jeez. right? It's the boss doing it, the big boss who's got all the important emails they have to respond to all the time. That's the person who tends to use it. We have to spread these antibodies so people know this is not a, a healthy behavior, that there's a time and a place for these technologies. And again, I love these technologies. I don't want them to go away. They're wonderful. But we have to learn how to use them at the right time and place so that we can be our best selves. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So you, you just touched on how you you know, work with a lot of different companies and people to try to become indistractable. 
what is the difference between a company or the people within a company who adopt this and actually take action on the things that you talk about versus the people who don't? Yeah, so there's um, about half the book is about stuff you yourself can do. Uh, but I, I acknowledge that our behavior is, is largely shaped by our environment. And so the second half of the book is about how do you become indistractable and help other people become indistractable in other environments. So there's a chapter on how to raise indistractable kids. There's a section on how to have an indistractable relationship. I talked about spousal relationships, friendships. And then I also talk about how to have an indistractable workplace. And this is probably, the, I think, you know, one of the most important sections of the book because it turns out that the modern workplace is, is literally driving people crazy. Uh, and I don't use that term lightly, that there's, in fact, research that shows that when people operate in a work environment with high expectations plus low control, high expectations, low control, this, there's a causal relationship, it looks like, with anxiety and depression disorder. So a certain type of work environment is literally driving people crazy. And what do people do? We talked about those internal triggers earlier. What do people do when they feel depressed, when they feel anxious? They become more likely to look for distractions. They call superfluous meetings that didn't need to be called. They send stupid emails that didn't need to be sent. And so unlike when somebody is just, you know, putzing around on Facebook and distracting themselves, when people work in this environment that is toxic, that is unhealthy for them, they not only distract themselves, they distract everybody else in the office too. And they bring down everybody's productivity. And so it's absolutely critical that companies understand one important thing, that distraction in the workplace is a symptom of cultural dysfunction. Let me say that Mm. again. Distraction in the workplace is a symptom of cultural dysfunction. Because if you work in a place where you're expected to be always on, where people are distracted, where people can't get a break, they always feel like they've got a million things coming them in a hundred directions, I got news for you. Your biggest problem, not distraction. You got all kinds of other problems because the real problem is not the technology. It's not even the distractions. It's the fact that we can't talk about the problem. Right. The number one criteria of a company, I do have profiles in the book. I have several profiles of companies who have become indistractable or were indistractable from their beginning to now. Or, and I do a, a case study on BCG as one particular case study of a company that, that changed. I used to work there. It was my first job out of college. This company changed from a company that used to have very, a, a really hard workplace culture, very high employee turnover. Today, they're rated as, as one of the best of places in America to work uh, by their wow. employees on Glassdoor. And they really change their culture. And one of the key traits, there's three key traits, is that they give employees psychological safety, meaning psychological safety is when you can talk about a problem without fear of getting fired. And it's that type of workplace culture where people can talk about the problem and then do something about it. Doing something about it is actually not that hard. Right? Can we have a conversation about this? And let me tell you, people can't talk about how they, how they are constantly distracted, you got all kinds of other skeletons in the closet that people aren't willing to talk about because they're scared. The second criteria is, is that you have a, a forum to talk about these problems. So at BCG, they do it in a weekly meeting where people get together and they talk about this kind of stuff. They talk about all kinds of stuff, but this is one of the things they talk about. Uh, at other companies, I profile Slack, which is ironic because many people think that Slack is this product that makes everybody distracted, but it turns out that at Slack, 
they don't suffer from distraction. That in fact, right. you know, it's not the technology because at Slack, uh, you know, you would expect that nobody uses Slack more than the people at Slack. And yet, you know, they, they don't have this problem. Why? Because not only do they give people psychological safety, they also give people a forum to talk about concerns about the company. And they actually do it on Slack, believe it or not. They have a, a Slack channel called Beef Tweets, where mm. people post beef about the company, right? Like things that they don't like, about the company culture, about what, what they're doing, about the product strategy, whatever. And, and, so that, and they also talk about you know, these, these concerns where management will show employees, this is really interesting, they actually will, will show employees that they've been heard by using emoji. Right. right. So they'll use a check mark emoji to signify that something's been fixed or an eyes emoji to show that something's been seen. And this way, people feel like they have greater agency and control. So even though they have high expectations, their sense of agency and control to do something about these problems increases. And then finally, the, the third trait uh, of a company that becomes indistractable is that management exemplifies what it means to be indistractable. So if you're that boss in the back of the room checking their phone, Right. While you're telling everybody else how important it is to focus and do their work, you're a hypocrite. And people know that. And, and culture flows downhill, right? So management needs to show what it means to be indistractable. At Slack, interestingly enough, I saw this big pink neon sign. Uh, it's in company headquarters in San Francisco. You can't miss it. It says in bright pink letters, it says, work hard and go home. Right. Because it's part of the company culture that to do our best work, we need to work without distraction. And everybody mm -hmm. in the company, from the CEO, Stuart Butterfield on down, believes in that company culture. Yeah, and I think you said maybe in the book or something that they have to be gone by 6 o'clock most days or yeah, something like that. Yeah, most days are gone by 6, 6.30. And uh, if you use Slack on nights and weekends, you're actually reprimanded because that is not right. what they do there. That is part of their, of their culture, that that's not appropriate behavior. And they enforce yeah. it. I mean, they don't, you know, they don't fire people for it but they tell people no no no, that's not what we do here yeah that's awesome well i want to get down to the last few questions to make sure i get you out of here on time i'm very curious is there ever a time that you think it's okay to get distracted no because by no. definition distraction is doing something that is not what you plan to do with your time now diversion is great the definition of diversion is just a refocusing of attention so if mm. you want to divert your attention to watch a movie, great. If you want to divert your attention to paint, to meditate, to pray, to go on a walk, to play a video game, diversions are wonderful, even the kind that help us escape reality for a bit. So getting into a great book, enjoying a movie, uh, any of that stuff, those are healthy diversions of attention as long as you do it with intent. But distractions are never healthy. Distractions never are never what we want to do. It's always that other thing that we didn't want to do with our time. Those distractions are never good. Okay, yeah, I like that that distinction. Well then, when when should you listen to a diversion? You know what I mean? Like when is it being intentional and when is it not? In advance. Okay, always in advance. Exactly. So in the moment, if I say, oh, you know what? This is hard, right? I'm working on this project. This is, this is boring. This is tough. Nobody's going to like what I'm working on. I'm not going to do a good job. Let me just take a quick break. That's a, a distraction because I plan right. to do X and now I'm doing something else because I'm looking to escape that internal trigger, that uncomfortable sensation. However, if I say I'm going to work on this hard task for 30 minutes, no more, no less, but I'm going to do it without distraction. I'm going to do nothing but 
after the 30 minutes, I'm going to check the news. I'm going to go on a walk. I'm going to check Facebook. I'm going to talk to a friend, something else. That's okay. Because I decided I would do it in advance. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Good deal. Well, the second to last question is I think that my goal every single day is to like chase down the best version of myself. And the method that I go about doing that is to try to gain clarity on what the best version of myself looks like, what he's capable of, and to find ways to reverse engineer that person every single day and and take action steps to get closer to him. So uh, a question for you personally, is there a skill or a piece of knowledge that the best version of yourself has that you don't currently have? Well, I think, so what, what you've expressed is, is almost the very definition of values. So values, when you ask me, what are your values? What does that mean? Values are attributes of the person you want to become. And so that, that's really what you're doing. You're, you're asking yourself, what are my values? What are the attributes of the person I want to become? And then that guides your action. And that's where we start when it comes to planning our day, right? It's not with what do I want to get done? It's how do I want to spend my time so that I can turn my values into time. I mm. should be able to look at your calendar as you can look at mine and understand what kind of person I am. How, how much do I value my family? How much do I value the work I do? How much do I value taking care of my personal health? You can see all my values on my calendar, right? And so that's where we have to start. It's about those values that guide how we spend our time. And so in terms of that macro skill, this is what becoming indistractable is all about you're never done becoming indistractable, right? right? Any more than you're ever done being creative, right? You're, it's a skill you utilize to have other things in your life. And so being indistractable, you're never done being indistractable. It's something you practice. Uh, and so that's a lifelong practice. Yeah, well, that's awesome. Well, before I ask the last question, I want to acknowledge you real quick because I think the depth of your work on this subject is super impressive and super helpful. And I love how like you said, you wrote the book more for yourself than anyone else because you saw the need in your life and then for you to kind of figure out these different things that help you take action in the way that you want to and spend the, and spend the time the way you want to um, and then be able to share it with everybody else. I just think that's super cool. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Well, it was, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Yeah, well, definitely. Um, and I want to make sure everybody can support you as much as possible. So make sure you get this book, Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. You can go to uh, nearandfar.com. You're on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube. Uh, and I'll make sure all that stuff is linked up on the show notes. Is there any anywhere else that people should go support you? Yeah. So there's if you end up getting the book, no obligation, of course, but you, if you do end up getting the book, there's actually a bonus I wanted to let your, your listeners yeah. know about. That if you uh, if you get the book, make sure you keep your order number. Okay, if you get the book, keep the order number. Whether it's at uh, your local bookseller, Amazon, doesn't matter where you get it. Audible, there's a there's a, a great audiobook if you prefer that way. Keep the order number and go to indistractable.com. And if you enter in that order number, there's actually a video course that's completely complimentary. There's also a bunch of tools, resources, all kinds of things, all at indistractable.com, and that's spelled I N. The word distract, A-B-L-E, indistractable.com. Perfect. Perfect. Well, good deal. Well, so the last question is I think that becoming the best version of yourself is a constant journey. I don't think that we're ever at that person. And I also think it's a unique journey. I think the way that I become the best version of myself is going to be a little bit different than the way that you get to the best version of yourself. So what I want to ask again for you personally is if there are three things that you could currently do or that you could currently work on to get closer to the best version of yourself, what are those three things that you could do or work on? So I think that I, I don't know if it's three specific actions. I mean, they're in my calendar, what, what I plan to do with my time. Right. 
but I think that there's some attributes. I think that uh, some some you know mantras that I often repeat: uh, consistency over intensity. I think mm-hmm. that's a really important one to remember. That I constantly have to remind myself that consistency is more important than intensity. It's not about you know. Uh, my New Year's resolution for 15 days, I'm going to exercise like crazy. It's about what you do every day for the rest of your life. Another thing uh, that I like to remind myself of is that happiness is being happy for the success of others. That mm. you know, you can short circuit, I think, our tendency towards envy that many people have, my, you know, frankly, myself included. When I see someone in my field doing better than I am, it's hard not to be envious. But instead, what I've done over the past several years is to remind myself that actually, for me, being happy is about being happy for the success of someone else. That becomes mm-hmm. what I want to celebrate, what I want to feel joy is when someone else in my field does really well. So happiness, uh, real happiness is being happy for the success of others is, is I think, a very important rule. Uh, and and there's, uh, there's so many potential rules to live by, but I think those are two yeah. really good ones. Okay. Yeah. I really love that second one. I haven't heard it phrased like that before, Um, but that was awesome. Thanks so much. I appreciate your time. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you, Nick. Of course. There you have it. I hope you enjoyed this amazing episode with Nir. This episode is one of the most important episodes to learn more about and to take action on. All of you out there know the importance of developing focus. You know the importance of not getting distracted. So now's the time to take the skills and knowledge you heard from Nir today and start applying them. Be sure to get his book, Indistractable, at nearandfar.com so you can dive deeper into his work and his action steps so you can become indistractable yourself. If you enjoyed the episode, be sure to share it with a friend, family member, or coworker. Who's the last person in your life who you talked about the importance of focus with? Send it to them. Send it to your coworker who you think is already super focused and show them how they can become even more so. Maybe share it with someone who always gets distracted and help them take their life career, and relationships to the next level. Remember, it doesn't so much matter what you do with your time. Rather, success is measured by whether you did what you planned to do. Near eye all. For now, it's time. It's time to take action. Time to plan out your day the way you want it to go. Time to break free from distractions so that you can be present in every moment of your life. Being present allows us to get more out of our relationships, out of our alone time, out of our professional careers, and out of our life in general. So go out in the world, work on becoming indistractable so you can get closer and closer to your best you.